Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. What do Donald Trump and the Ayatollah Khamenei have in common with Rihanna? Answer, they have all been banned on social media, although apparently only Rihanna has been rehabilitated. Social media has become the lifeblood of politics, entertainment, education, dating, you name it, and even more so as the pandemic has forced so much of life online. That makes the use and abuse of social media fundamental to our lives and to our democracies. Can, should online speech be regulated? If so, by whom? Today, it's the tech companies, but is that enough or even a good idea? More broadly, the internet and social media have evolved in ways that encourage noise, emotion, and even hate with profound political and human consequences. My guest today is Lee Bollinger, president of Columbia University, widely considered one of the United States leading legal scholars on freedom of speech, and someone who has written extensively about the evolution of that fundamental freedom in the digital age. Welcome, President Bollinger. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Recently, President Macron of France said that hate, turbocharged by social media, is a threat to democracy itself. Let's start there at 60,000 feet. Do you think Macron is overstating the case? Well, <clears throat> I mean, the it's hard to uh, hard to tell. It seems to me. I mean, there's been there are a lot of people who are looking very seriously at the uh, nature of ideas of speech, uh, of communications on the new technologies of communication, the internet, and all of its parts. And I think I think we all feel like this is a, a set of problems uh, about dialogue discussion speech on the on the internet that we have not encountered before at a level we have not encountered before so i think there's a common perception that this is very dangerous distorting of public debate something that uh, again as at a level that we haven't encountered before because it is important to realize these are not new um, uh, problems but the, the argument is the problems are much greater and whether that is true or not is something that that really does need to be studied uh, very carefully I'm of the view right now I'm working on the premise that it is much greater that uh, doesn't answer the next question which is what can be done about it consistent with uh, norms and doctrines and constitutional law. It also has a uniquely global and a uniquely instantaneous uh, characteristic to this medium. Earlier changes, the printing press, uh, the evolution of telegraph, telephone, all of that was slower. Uh, it wasn't as immediate. It didn't have, didn't seem to have this push a button and suddenly things happen instantly aspect to it. And it certainly wasn't global. How is your thinking at this point evolving around this technology? Uh, <clears throat> so I have a person that I collaborate with on books, um, Jeff Stone, who's a law professor at the University of Chicago Law School, great constitutional law scholar, great First Amendment scholar, uh, and we've known each other for many decades. And we've written now together several books, and the most recent are about how First Amendment law in the United States is really only 100 years old. It does 
the First Amendment goes back to the beginning of the Constitution, uh, but uh, the first cases really are only in 1919. And the book that will come out very shortly here this week, in fact, is about how the Internet may or may not have changed the uh, values at stake in problems of press publication of classified information, the so-called Pentagon Papers problem. Now, today, the Snowden WikiLeaks problem. That gets to your observation, Alan, which is that we have, with this new technology uh, of the internet, entered into a form of communication uh, that is, as you rightly put it, both instantaneous and global and almost universally available. And by that, I don't mean that everybody has access to the internet. Uh, That is the track we're on, but that all those people who do have access uh, can communicate effectively to everyone. And that is a, that is a state of play in the world of communications that in one sense may be the realization of the ideal of what we have thought about with freedom of speech and freedom of the press, but from another perspective, the most alarming uh, development. And that's the, that's the kind of dilemma we're facing today. But you're absolutely right. I think it is the first truly global technology of communication, which has all kinds of implications. It does. And indeed, there's even the real possibility that it almost became global and is now beginning to fracture. Clearly, for example, and you've touched on this in your work, the Chinese have a very different view of these technologies, and I use it in the plural, than do most Americans, indeed most liberal democracies. So you have one internet that is the Chinese internet, you have one which is the Russian internet, you have ours, and there seems to be this fracturing going on, which is both perhaps good news and bad news, because it undermines exactly what you just said, that... It was almost global at a time when we were almost global, and we seem to be retreating fast from that almost globalness. Is is that premature? Can we get to that global reality that our problems demand? Yeah, so that's a fascinating set of observations, and I've tried to think a lot about this. In some ways, what this shows is a reality that technology is the major driver, first and foremost. Um, technology comes into play. It's um, it's expanded. People like it. They use it. Um, and before you know it, within the space of a decade or two, you have this unbelievable form of communication that has these qualities that we've never had before in human existence. I think that caught governments uh, flat-footed. And many governments found this very threatening. Many governments found this um, undermining of, of their own power, their own authority. Uh, I mean, if you're an authoritarian-minded uh, ruler and your citizens can now be uh, have access to communications not only between themselves, among themselves, but from people all over the world, uh, you're going to be uh, alarmed by that. And, and that's one of the things that has happened. And the response is exactly the one you identified, which is an effort by governments uh, across the world to nationalize the internet, to put it back in a box of nation states. Uh, where we've had communications uh, basically for the uh, uh, past, uh, you know, hundred years and before. 
I don't think that will be completely successful. Um, indeed, I don't think it will be successful in the end because I think people find ways around uh, these restrictions very hard to be sure in many cases. Um, but I think that the force of the desire to communicate and the desire to know and to learn and to understand is so powerful that uh, the effort will always be one of reaction and and attempts to stop it. Uh, but I, I don't think it will ever be completely successful. I do think on the issue of broad, more broadly, not just on communications, but the phenomena of globalization, I, I do think that's also irreversible, uh, even though we're now in a period, just like with the internet, where it once was um, uh, glorified and now it is vilified. But the forces of communication that I just talked about and the forces of markets, business, uh, economic activity, desire to improve your standard of living, um, I think are more powerful than any uh, individual national effort to try to stop it. Um, and lastly, I think the related to those two, the, the rise of global problems, and of course, climate change is first and foremost in our minds when we say, what is a global problem? Those problems will demand kind of much more global uh, response. So I do think globalization is irreversible. And I do think the effort to nationalize and, and control and limit the new technology of communication will not be completely successful, though it will have no doubt, significant negative effects on this. The challenge perhaps is not that the problems demand global solutions. We're still coping with the pandemic, which certainly deserved a global approach and, and got national and local ones instead. Um, but the question is global governance. And in this space of free speech, of open communication, uh, you have done a lot of work uh, citing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, and the commitment signed by most nations back in 1948 to free expression. Uh, fast forward to 2021, and it seems that commitment is honored in the breach in large parts of the world at best, and in part because there seems to be no, in, in my judgment, not much capacity at the global governance level to enforce, not rules, because they're not rules as much as they are norms to get to the world that you described, including in this very important space of free speech, how do we develop norms, institutions perhaps, at the global level uh, that can accomplish some of the things that you just described? So this is, um, uh, again, a profound question. And, and I'm sorry to uh, have to approach this by in what may seem like a very slight digression, um, but I think it puts it in context. I mentioned a moment ago that the first cases on the First Amendment in the United States were not until 1919 in the Supreme Court. They were not great opening rulings. Uh, a candidate for president of the United States uh, was gave a speech in Ohio, was put in jail, and the Supreme Court upheld the conviction and the imprisonment, imprisonment um, denying the free speech claims of the presidential candidate. Our notions of freedom of speech and press in the United States really date from the 1960s, cases like New York Times versus Sullivan, Pentagon Papers, and so on. The point is that we went from a world in which individual states in the United States could pretty much have their own rules and norms and laws about free speech 
free press, to one in which there were national problems, and this is the 1950s and 60s, anti-war movement, questions of civil rights, environmental concerns, and the like, and a national press. That was the new technology of communication of that period, which was broadcasting. TV. And in that new context of national problems, national media, and so on, national rules about free speech were developed. That was the prime moment. In today's world, we have moved from the local to the national, and now we are facing the global. So we now have a world in which there is global communications, as we've established, as we've said. There are global problems that have to be solved. There are needs to uh, for people to be able to discuss things. And we have the technology to do it. And yet we have very limited norm and doctrines and laws. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, the International Convention on uh, the Covenant on Political Rights. And these establish the First Amendment for the world in words, but we don't have the United States Supreme Court at the global level to be able to do this. Now, it's very easy then to say we will not get that and we are not developing global norms. And that, I think, is not true. Um, recently, I did another book with Anya's Calamard and part of a project here on global free expression. And the whole point of this book, regardless of frontiers, is to show how, in fact, global norms are developing. Courts are different countries. Regions are looking at decisions in other parts of the world. There's now a set of writings and doctrines that people apply across the world. And there are regional bodies, the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, the European Court on Human Rights, and one for Africa, African Court on Human Rights, and they and national courts surprisingly across the world are making very significant leaps, developments in freedom of speech and freedom of the press doctrines. So while it is true that we don't have the international Supreme Court to establish laws and doctrines about free speech, free press, we do have the international instruments that lay this out. And we do have the beginnings of a kind of uh, communication among courts, judicial systems, and even uh, regional courts that are beginning to uh, develop this idea of freedom of speech. And that's positive. So amidst all the negative, and there's plenty of it, uh, there's also a positive uh, side to this. Well, I want to, unfortunately, come back on the negative side, I think, because certainly the many of the examples you cite in the book are based on countries that share values. They're based uh, primarily on Europe or European extracted constitutions uh, like Kenya um, or the United States and other constitutions that were somehow modeled on our constitution. So there's a commonality underlying that of culture, history, even law, although one thing I am certainly not as a lawyer. Um, whereas the large divide at the moment, of course, is evolving between the Chinese on the one hand and the Americans on the other hand, the two superpowers of the 21st century. As you have pointed out in, in one of your works, that the Chinese seem to have just concluded that freedom of speech in the United States and the way it manifests itself is an enormous liability uh, for the United States, an enormous advantage for the Chinese. So you've got this competition, which is economic, which is political, which may well become military in, in some ways, but it's also over values and fundamentally over values. 
I think I would challenge the opening uh, proposition that free speech and free press, as we're talking about it, freedom of communication, expression, is really a, a Western concept. Uh, to some extent, of course it is. But I have long been fascinated by how you can look into every single culture every single civilization, every single whatever you want to class, however you want to classify the development of humanity and find ideas about openness of thought, openness of speech and communication uh, that is valued and, and, and regarded as a virtue for a period of time. So I think there's something in the human character the human and human nature that, that seeks this. Uh, the way it has been refined and developed in the United States and Europe, I think, but really the, let's focus on the United States, is very special and unique. Um, so I frequently point out that the United States has uh, evolved into the most protective uh, system for freedom of speech and press of any nation in history any nation today. I mean, you can say terrible things uh, and have it uh, protected, very dangerous and, and difficult, terrible things. That um, that general idea about how you should think, one should think about freedom of thought and communication is, you are absolutely right, being challenged in the most serious way by China uh, and uh, the the question every time I debate uh, people uh, in China uh, about free speech, uh, the argument on their side is you have embraced the system, as you point out, I point out relatively recently, actually, in human history. And it is become it has become almost a, a fetish uh, where you value communication more than any other interests. That's not entirely true, but that's the argument. Trust in the leaders of the society. Limits on the spread of um, communication that creates division, that creates hatred, that undermines uh, community values. You have committed yourself to a one form of human activity, speaking, uh, at the expense of all others, and you are now paying the cost of that. You, your societies are deeply divided. Every day you see in the press uh, points, uh, the point is made that, in fact, political lines are so severed that it's almost impossible to function, except in a highly divided way, a divisive way. And we, on the other hand, are moving forward with, uh, with our development with a very different set of values being weighed in a different outcome. And we think our system is better over the long run than yours is. That is the challenge. How do we answer? We the Chinese. We the Chinese. Uh, exactly. That is the debate. And I think our our challenge, if we believe, as I do, in our system, broadly, not just the U.S. system, but the open system, is how to answer that. I mean, that that's and that's not an easy thing to do in a serious debate. Well, let, let's go there because we can narrow the aperture down in a sense and talk about how do we make how would you propose making the U.S. system better than it is right now? We clearly have profound questions being debated about who ought to control the technology, who ought to regulate. When Donald Trump was banned from social media, one of the loudest voices protesting was Angela Merkel uh, in Germany, who essentially was not protesting his being banned, but rather that he was banned by a private company. And how could we possibly think that in putting the power 
to control free speech of this kind in the hands of a board of directors or an individual CEO? How can that possibly be good policy? What would your response be? Well, um, so this is um, this is the the question we started with. Uh, if you say we've moved into this new technology of communication very rapidly, it expands the range of voices uh, incredibly. That's good from an ideal free speech standpoint. The marketplace of ideas is now no longer controlled by a, a group of. Um, owners of newspapers and broadcast stations. Now anybody can uh, communicate. So from that perspective, it's good. On the other hand, as you point out, that uh, Merkel pointed out, but many others, this is now a forum in which most people get their news and information in public. It's happened that quickly. And it is controlled by a very small number of people effectively. And uh, it's not because of a limit, a physical limit on the number of people who can control this. It's, it's because of an economic limit. So should that now be a source of concern such that we should allow the government to intervene and to uh, help regulate what is spoken on the social media platforms and what is not. I mean, that's the, that's the question. And the answer in First Amendment in U.S. history is ambivalent on that question. On the one hand, uh, over the past century, the Supreme Court has made it absolutely clear that even though newspapers are monopolies, daily newspapers, beginning in the 1960s, 70s, were effectively monopolies in 90% of the towns and cities in America, only one daily newspaper, we would not allow the government, city, state, federal government to intervene and to regulate what is what would be published in the newspaper. However, in a completely separate set of decisions and policies, the Supreme Court and the Congress and the federal government, with respect to broadcasting TV and uh, radio, in the context of TV, there definitely was an oligopoly, three per community. Uh, we set up a system under a federal agency with control over content. That is uh, the fairness doctrine, requiring broadcasters to have to publish or air other points of view and uh, not allowing the government, quote, to censor, but uh, to intervene. Our question today is with the new uh, technology of communication, which of those traditions are we going to draw on in dealing with this problem of private control uh, over this incredibly powerful new means of communication? Great minds think alike, because I was about to ask you about the fairness doctrine. We recently had uh, Congressman, former Congressman Dick Gephardt on the Telberg Foundation podcast, and he remembered how quite positively that the Fairness Doctrine, when he was a young politician, uh, created a different kind of speech, he thought, and wondered aloud whether or not some kind of updated version of the Fairness Doctrine isn't precisely what is needed, although he admitted he had no idea how, in fact, to engineer one. Do you think it is doable in, in with a technology which is so ubiquitous, so always on, so massive, is it a solvable problem or is is it, as my colleague, former colleague, Dr. Kissinger used to argue, there are some problems that can't be solved. Is this one that can't be solved? 
So it's possible that it can't be solved, although we don't know yet. So my uh, friend and colleague uh, Jeff Stone and I are working on uh, this book on this problem. And we'll have, again, about 18 authors um, writing about uh, the question we're talking about. Can social media be regulated by the state in order to stop the spread of misinformation, stop foreign interference in our uh, public discussions of public issues, stop the incitement of hatred, um, stop the echo chamber effect? to stop the censoring by social media platforms of speech that uh, that contravene their particular policies. Uh, what is the role of the government, and in particular the federal government, in this new medium? It's very interesting what you say about Dick Gephardt, because I think his thought pattern there was, was as you said yourself, very interesting. If you're really concerned about the problematic speech on social media platforms, the place to look to for some kind of uh, public intervention is broadcast regulation. And as soon as you look there, it's the fairness doctrine. But once you say, well, okay, the, there's some precedent in our history for uh, drawing on regulation and the fairness doctrine, the fairness doctrine is a completely blunt in- instrument for dealing with this. It's it's the idea of some form of government intervention that is a viable idea. The particular policies of the broadcast media era uh, and regulation are not, I think, applicable. So then the problem is, um, what do we do? Uh, what are some ideas? And people are throwing out things like, and not throwing out, but discussing, removing the Section 230, the communications uh, law from the uh, 1990s that protects all media companies, platforms from any liability for illegal uh, speech that's communicated. If the New York Times publishes a statement of somebody else, an advertisement statement that defames another individual, not only can those people who put the ad in be held uh, civilly liable, but the New York Times can. Section 230 does not allow that to uh, happen for the internet companies, and should it now be amended or changed or reversed to allow laws against to be enforced against the owners of media, uh, social media. The problem is that that's if you take that step, it's still not going to solve the problem um, because a lot of the speech that is problematic on social media platforms is not illegal. And therefore, you're going to have to go make new laws banning certain speech. And that's when it begins to run into the First Amendment. And the question is, I think, for the future, for the United States and for other countries, will we change our notions of freedom of speech and press? our doctrines, our principles, our laws, because the dangers of speech on social media platforms has become too great to live with the framework that we have had up to now. To put it very, to put it very simply, over the past hundreds of years, but especially the past 50, we have lived by a very simple idea. And that idea is by allowing a vast openness of speech, we will be able to correct for problems in that by having good speech uh, counter the bad speech. And we trust that process to work. doesn't always work uh, perfectly, but we think in the long run, whatever that is, it will work out. The question now is, do we believe that completely unregulated speech on the social media platforms and the internet 
will the way that it's structured really result with uh, in a good outcome because good speech can counter bad speech? Do we think that that's still true or do we think that it's not true? And if not, how far are we prepared to go? to remedy that situation. That's our fundamental problem today. There may well be some technological tweaks. Uh, Someone recently argued that the way social media works today, excessive outrage is excessively rewarded. Um, So their suggestion was a pause button that that you impose some time right now. You think it, it appears on that screen and it's gone and it's, it's, it's then promoted through the, the way that social media promotes the more outrageous gets outrageously rewarded. Um, so that though those are probably technological fixes. The question is going to be, and, and this is rhetorical, uh, whether the companies are smart enough to do that themselves or they're stupid enough to wait for um, regulators to come along and, and begin building a structure on top of them. But I want to take advantage of the fact that you are the president of a great university and um, and and had been president of another university, the University of Michigan. Um, so you know students better than most people listening to to us today. There is what I hope is a canard out there that students today do not support free speech in the main, the way that perhaps we, when we were younger, uh, thought we did. Is there a more complex relationship today between students and the notion of free speech, free expression, hate speech, and so on. So there's several things to say about this. I've, I've written a few pieces on it. First of all, I think um, the general idea that this generation uh, is does not understand free speech and is unsympathetic uh, to the notions of open free speech, I, I think is uh, vastly overstated. Uh, and a piece I did uh, in The Atlantic, I argued that um, we've had lots of controversial speakers come through Columbia, many, many controversial speakers. And uh, students have invited many uh, of these, and they've all come, gone, protests have happened, but they're all reasonable protests, and, and it moves on. Uh, the experience of Columbia is replicated across the country. What we hear about are those outrageous examples where somebody is invited to speak and then a whole group of of people come, mostly say students, and they stop the speaker from speaking or they force a withdrawal of the invitation to speak. And that's highlighted and it is terrible and not respecting of open thought and open speech, but they are more the exception by far than the general rule. So that's that's the first point. I think it's really overstated, uh, the criticism um, of universities and young people on free speech. Secondly, I teach a course every fall to undergraduates, 150 or so, uh, on the First Amendment and free speech free press. And I can tell you that uh, I think these students are today are just as attuned to uh, the ideas of free speech as any students I have taught over the course of my career. Uh, You have to learn. Free speech is counterintuitive. I mean, the idea of free speech is not natural. That's why we have as part of the Bill of Rights, um, uh, we have to have a court, courts that stop the government and the society from doing what you're inclined to do. It's more natural to suppress free speech than it is to protect free speech. This has been true uh, forever and will always continue to be true. So there's always a need 
to counter the impulse to uh, censor. But I don't think this generation is any different in that respect from any other. Let me end where we started, because I think you've answered over the course of this conversation my question about Macron and whether social media and the Internet are fundamental threats to democracy. Uh, It's not a yes-no answer. It shouldn't be. But I take it your answer is no, they are not. We're smart enough to figure out solutions that will both preserve democracy and advantage free speech. So here I think one has to be very careful. In the United States, under the First Amendment, hate speech, speech advocating racism, neo-Nazism, the ideas of the Klan are protected unless they reach the point where uh, the threat of violence and illegal action is imminent. The speaker has to intend it, has to be uh, directed at creating violence, and uh, the violence has to be imminent. In Europe uh, and in every other country, really, uh, of the um, democrat democracy world, uh, there's a different approach. And the approach is that this kind of speech can be so harmful to individuals and to the society that it can be banned. In the United States, there's long been a debate about where we should set the parameters of free speech and how even allowing a speech about hate and prejudice and discrimination uh, should be protected. For Again, for a variety of reasons I've written at length about, about this. So there's a difference of opinion to start with um, on this completely reasonable debate. That was something I wanted to say about uh, this generation of students, some of whom or maybe more of whom believe there should be greater regulation of so-called hate speech. I disagree with that, but it's a perfectly reasonable position to take and a perfectly reasonable argument. The next question is, has uh, the approach in the United States, are we on the wrong track because the internet has now magnified the harms and the costs of hate speech to such a degree that we need to take a different approach and allow greater regulation. I think that's what Macron is indicating, and I think that is an open question. I'm not convinced at this point yet uh, that it has reached a point where it calls for a different approach, but I do believe that it is something that uh, needs to be discussed and will have to be decided uh, in the future. Well, thank you for this conversation, but also thank you for all of the work that you've done and continue to do. You try to preserve freedom of speech, not just in this country, but as a global value. Uh, It is terribly important to all of us. Thank you again. Thank you very much for having me, Alan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments on our website, talbergfoundation.org. And please subscribe to the podcast in the app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.